Everywhere we look, all throughout the universe, there are lights to be seen, not just from the stars in our own galaxy, but from galaxies far, far beyond the Milky Way. All told, all throughout the universe, we probably have somewhere around two trillion galaxies that are presently observable. And yet when we look at them, with our eyes, with our optical telescopes, we're only seeing a very, very small fraction of what's actually going on. We see the stars in the galaxy, and we see the light-blocking gas and dust that's in front of them. But there is so much more happening inside every one of these cosmic homes to the stars, planets, and more in the universe. What's going on inside these galaxies, and how do we use light beyond the visible wavelength range to find out? Why don't you stick with us and find out all about it here on the Starts With a Bang podcast? There are certain ways that we look at the universe that are very easy to do from down here on Earth, but there are other wavelengths of light that are much more challenging. The Earth's atmosphere is not transparent to every wavelength of light. We have tools that we can use that take us beyond the capabilities of our eyes, of optical telescopes, and even beyond the limits of what Earth's atmosphere obscures for us. And here to tell us about that, I'm so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Jessica Sutter. Jessica is a postdoctoral research associate under the University Space Research Association and works at NASA Ames Research Center. Jessica, I'm so pleased to have you here and welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm excited to be here and have the opportunity to share a little bit about what I've been working on. Yeah. So one of the things that I know is when you go above Earth's atmosphere, you can see pretty much any wavelength of light that you've built your telescope or observatory to measure the universe in. But down here on the surface of the Earth, we have all sorts of different properties of our atmosphere, water vapor, uh, the gases in the atmosphere, uh, clouds, or even when the clouds are free, that actually wind up blocking a significant portion of that light. What what can we do to overcome those limitations? And why do we even have those limitations in the first place? Well, so I should, I work in the infrared and specifically the far infrared. So in the far infrared, we're mostly worried about that water vapor, which can block just a ton of the infrared light. It's kind of like, almost like our earth has a giant pair of sunglasses on that's specifically blocking the infrared light. So we just have a hard time seeing it because of all that water vapor. So even on a clear night, yeah, like you mentioned clouds, we're not seeing the, the infrared light isn't getting through our atmosphere. And this is because that water can absorb infrared light. So this specific wavelength water is able to absorb, making it so it can't get to us. If we want to observe it, one of the best ways, as you mentioned, is to get above the atmosphere. So a lot of times that means space observatories. So in the infrared, those are observatories like Spitzer and Herschel, which are no longer operational, unfortunately. Um, and then the James Webb Space Telescope will also be an infrared observatory, which is 
getting ready, you were super excited to see what it produces, but rather difficult to get to space. So the other thing you can do is you can get above at least part of the atmosphere by observing from the stratosphere. So the observatory I work with um, is on a tele is on an airplane um, and flies above flies in the atmosphere above about 99% of that water vapor, allowing us to see the infrared, even though we are still limited by Earth's atmosphere. There are also some really cool balloon projects that put telescopes on balloons and fly those into the atmosphere. Um, I haven't worked with those, but I've seen the data they produce, and it's just another potential way to get around the fact that on Earth we do have this atmosphere, which is great if you want to breathe and live and exist, but can be kind of difficult if you want to observe the night sky. So positives and negatives, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that we evolved to uh, take advantage of the properties of Earth's atmosphere that we have, and we didn't evolve so well to be far-infrared astronomers, at least <laughs> at least not without the aid of some type of tool. So uh, I love this notion of going up high, high in the atmosphere. Um, I've been around cosmology long enough to remember that, you know, Back before we had WMAP and Planck to measure the cosmic microwave background, uh, there were an enormous series of balloon-borne experiments that really helped reveal the universe on small angular scales. And even today, there are a series of experiments that explore in that wavelength range uh, down at the South Pole, where again, you're above much of the Earth's atmosphere and you have these windows where you can see the microwave sky. Where you're talking about the far infrared is particularly challenging because, like you said, water vapor is a tremendously good absorber of far infrared light. And even if you go to the desertiest desert area in the world, um, the air is still going to have substantial amounts of water vapor in it. So what you'd want to do is get above where the water vapor is. And that's kind of interesting because I would have expected that having been around for four and a half billion years, Earth's atmosphere would actually be well mixed all throughout it, but it turns out that's not the case. Can you uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into why the water vapor that's in our atmosphere is mostly uh, stuck at sort of these low altitudes, and why there isn't so much of it up, you know, above where we send, um, you know, space-based planes like Sophia or. Uh, almost in space balloons that that take us up so high what what is it that allows us to see the far infrared universe up at these high altitudes it's partially our atmosphere um is layered so we're seeing um like the clouds exist in different layers and as we move up we're getting changes in temperature changes in pressure and um changes in the density and that changes what our atmosphere is composed of a little bit I think one of the things that that happens in the atmosphere is, you know, water vapor is it's a relatively light molecule. But what happens is uh, it stays sort of in this gaseous phase for a while. 
and it rises, it's very happy to rise, but as it rises, it also cools. And there's a certain threshold where you have this combination of pressure and temperature where once the water gets up to a certain altitude, it's going to precipitate and it's going to change phase from the gaseous phase into either a liquid or solid phase. And once that happens, uh, it doesn't rise any higher because you've crossed that, I forget what that critical point is, it might be called the dew point. But once that happens, the water sort of precipitates out of the gaseous phase. So even as you go higher up, you have less and less water vapor beyond a certain point. Okay. <laughs> Does that sound right? <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, it's 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 been a while since I've thought about atmospheric science. It's like well, I know it's there. I know we have to deal with it. Um. <laughs> but that's that's the whole thing is, you know, nobody is an expert in every aspect of this, right? You're not the expert in atmospheric science here. You know, for you, this is an obstacle that needs to be overcome. The whole point to you is the atmosphere is opaque at these wavelengths at these altitudes. So what you can do is you can either go to a different set of wavelengths, which is sort of like the giving up strategy, or you can say, okay, how do I overcome this? I can go to space, and we've done that a few times, but, you know, the Origin Space Telescope wasn't chosen as the next flagship mission for or NASA astrophysics. And so it may be built, but we're going to have to wait. And Herschel is defunct. And Spitzer uh, never really got that far into the far infrared. It was really more of a mid-infrared instrument. So what are you going to do? And I love this solution of we go to balloons, we go to planes, and we just take our far infrared optimized telescopes up above where the atmosphere is going to block that light, and then we can see the universe beyond that. And as I understand it, that's actually an incredibly successful strategy. Like with these balloon-borne experiments and with uh, an observatory like SOFIA, it really is at a tiny, tiny fraction of the cost of going to space, um, getting you data that's almost just as good. Yeah, and the another great thing about SOFIA, so again, this is the observatory I primarily work with. Um, it stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Um, so that's just, it's in the stratosphere and we're doing infrared astronomy. It's just a telescope on an airplane. Um, the other really nice thing is it lands every night, which is something that most, um, or every morning, I guess, um, which... Um, space missions don't do. So we're able to update equipment and kind of change things out, modify things if we need to, which is really difficult um, with space-based missions. We've obviously seen it happen with Hubble. We've been able to um, fix things when they go wrong, but it's costly and it's challenging and it requires a space mission. Whereas with SOFIA, we land every night so we can update equipment, we can change out instruments, um, which allows us to do different types of measurements in the far infrared as well. So it's not just one camera, it's like a lot of different cameras all looking in the far infrared. Yeah, and that I think is really a remarkable thing because, um, you know, we just launched the James Webb Space Telescope and everyone is excited about that and what we're going to learn from that. But that technology that's aboard James Webb on its instruments, uh, that's what we call frozen in. We might get 20 years of science uh, observe observations out of James Webb, but 
20 years from now, uh, those instruments are still going to be those same instruments we have today. As you said, when you have access to all the facilities we have down here on Earth's surface, which you do when you have a observatory on board a plane that comes down and lands every you know single day, you're going to be able to change those out. I think um, I'm aware of uh, just over the last five years, I know the instruments aboard Sophia have been upgraded multiple times just in that short time scale, which, you know, is is a phenomenal thing. It means we are so much better equipped that as soon as we make an advance in cameras, in instrumentation, um, we can implement that ASAP and we don't have to wait for either the next servicing mission or the next space-based mission to build a superior instrument for it. Exactly. And yeah, I know it's all of the names all astronomers like our acronyms. So we had great and then it became upgrade because it got upgraded and we had Hawk and then Hawk plus and like it just kind of making things tweaking, making them better um, as we get better technology, exactly like you said. So once we can observe the universe in the far infrared, you start revealing all sorts of features that are invisible to you in other wavelengths of light. I know, for example, that if I were to look at the Milky Way galaxy in visible light, I would see the same things my eyes see. I would see the stars where there are stars, um, except I would also see these dark regions which correspond to where molecular clouds of gas and dust block that light. If I go into the near-infrared, as I go to longer and longer wavelengths, I start seeing that that dust, that gas, that light-blocking material is less prominent, that I start to be able to see the glow of the stars through that. And my understanding of that is because in the near-infrared light, what starts to happen is the wavelength of light is longer, and at some point it's going to get larger than the physical size of the infrared dust grains. And when that happens, those dust grains become very, very bad absorbers of the light. So just based on the size of the dust grains and the fact that infrared infrared wavelengths of light have a particular wavelength, all of a sudden I can see through the dust that blocks me in the optical. What happens as I start to go to even longer wavelengths, as I start to move out of the near infrared and into the mid and far infrared, what can I see that isn't available to me in those shorter wavelengths of light? So there's a lot, um, and that's, it's, there's a, a lot of the dust that you just mentioned that can block the optical light will actually glow in the infrared. Um, so anything with a temperature, we all glow in the infrared as well. If you've ever seen kind of a spy movie and they pull out their like um, night vision goggles, sometimes those are using infrared light to show where there's a heat source. So that could be a person, but it could also be dust in a galaxy. Of course, those night vision goggles aren't designed to measure dust in a galaxy, but dust in galaxies does glow in the infrared. Um, and then there's what I look at specifically, which is emission lines from the gases in the galaxies, where there are some of these far infrared um, emission lines that tell us what kind of chemicals the gas in galaxies is made out of, and also tell us some information about um, what energetic processes might be happening in galaxies. 
So I I really, when I think about light, my default is to think in terms of nanometers, because, you know, we talk about the visible wavelength range that we can see, and that's between 400 nanometers and 700 nanometers. And then when you move into the infrared, you start moving from hundreds of nanometers into microns because 1000 nanometers is one micron and the near infrared will take you out to about five microns then you have the mid infrared and james webb will take you out to about 28 to 30 microns but when you say the far infrared you know now we're talking about a hundred or more microns we're talking about much much longer wavelengths you're talking about something that's about the wavelength that's the same thickness as the hair on my beard or the hair on a thick-haired person's head um and that that's that's much much longer um and so i understand that you know whatever temperature you are informs, you know, in what wavelength range you'll radiate at. So if you're a few tens of degrees above absolute zero, you'll radiate in the mid-infrared. But when you're talking about the far-infrared now, you're talking about the specific transitions of electrons in the energy levels of atoms and ions and molecules and and partially ionized molecules. So are there specific types of emission lines you would want to look for? And what do the different emission lines teach you about what you're looking at? A lot of the um, infrared emission lines we look at um, tend to be what we call far infrared fine structure lines. And so these are lines, they're really low energy. So long wavelength corresponds to low energy. And they're low energy because instead of being an electron moving between two electron shells, if you can think back to high school chemistry, there's like um, the electrons exist in these different shells around the nucleus. And usually when they we see um, emission from an element, it's because an electron moved from an upper level, an upper shell to a lower shell. But with these far infrared fine structure lines, the electrons aren't changing their energy level, they're just flipping their spin. And so it's a very small change in energy, um, which is why we get these really long, long wavelength light, well, long, um, relatively long um, in terms of um, light wavelength, low energy light. Um, And so most of the um, elements that we see producing these emission are we see Singly ionized carbon has a really prominent far infrared fine structure line at 158 microns. Um, there's also a couple of singly ionized nitrogen lines. Um, and then there's a few oxygen lines. Um, neutral oxygen has one at 63 microns as well as a emission line at 144 microns. And then um, doubly ionized um, oxygen has an emission line at 88 microns, which is become more of interest, especially for people studying um, really distant galaxies, as well as low metallicity, so mostly hydrogen and helium dwarf galaxies in the local universe. So mostly these carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen lines, which are carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, are the three most prevalent elements after hydrogen and helium. So um, kind of what we might expect to look for if we're not looking for hydrogen and helium. So for me, when I think about what you're talking about is the fine structure 
of atoms and ions, I start thinking about, for me, what's the most famous fine structure transition, which is the spin flip transition of neutral hydrogen. I can imagine that I've got electrons and protons out there in space. And when they find one another, they make an atom of neutral hydrogen. Now, I can imagine since they have all these particles, what we call fermions, things like electrons and protons and neutrons, they all have an intrinsic spin to them, which is an intrinsic angular momentum. So I can imagine when I make a hydrogen atom, I can either make them that an electron and proton form a hydrogen atom with their spins aligned, where they're pointing in the same direction, or I can form them with their spins anti-aligned, where they're formed in the opposite direction. And even though these are two distinct states, it's possible to quantum tunnel from the higher energy configuration, which is where the spins are aligned, into a slightly lower energy configuration where the spins are anti-aligned. But if I quantum tunnel from one state to another and there's an energy transition, then I have to emit a photon to conserve energy. And that's what happens in hydrogen. I imagine in ionized carbon or doubly ionized oxygen or ionized nitrogen, um, it's sort of the same thing that's happening, that I have electrons and I have nuclei and they have certain spins and I can transition from one energy level to another energy level that's not like these big energy level jumps that I imagine uh, when I have like a... Uh, uh, optical or an ultraviolet photon striking an atom, but rather these are these, you know, spin orbit interactions that's that are just causing these tiny slight energy differences. And I quantum transition from one state into another. Is that is that kind of a good mental picture of what's happening to cause these emission lines? Yes, that's exactly right. And yeah, the hydrogen atom is a really great example because it's pretty easy to think about these heavier elements these astronomical metals get slightly more complicated just because there are more electrons and more protons but it's the same type of effect um so we're seeing yeah spin transitions that um, emit this low energy light in the hydrogen's case it's 21 centimeters so that's even longer than <laughs> the far infrared lines i'm looking at even lower energy but it's a very similar type of quantum transition. Well, that's wonderful. So one of the things that kind of makes me think, ooh, this has got to be something that can only occur in specific environments because you only start to ionize atoms when you have high energy processes taking place, things like ultraviolet photons, things like young blue stars, things like star forming regions, things like nearby cataclysms like supernovae. If you don't have a big source of energy, it's very difficult to ionize atoms. So when you're looking at, for example, 
doubly ionized oxygen, I know that really only happens once you get to environments where the temperature is more than 50,000 degrees, which is great in the early universe, but not so great when you are looking at a galaxy that isn't presently undergoing active star formation. Thankfully, though, I don't think the situation is as dire for singly ionized carbon or nitrogen, which is primarily what you've been looking at. So can I ask you, uh, where do you find this ionized carbon? So ionized carbon turns up in a lot of places, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. Um, Carbon has an ionization potential of 11.3 electron volts. So the important thing to recognize with that number, not something we don't interact with electron volts much, but um, is that it's lower than 13.6 electron volts. So which is one Rydberg or the amount of energy it takes to ionize hydrogen. Since most of what we see in galaxies is hydrogen. Um, we kind of use whether or not hydrogen is ionized to start to kind of break up the different parts of a galaxy. We look at places where hydrogen is ionized and where it's neutral. And so um, hydrogen is going to be ionized when there's, like you said, around young stars um, or other energetic events that are producing photons with energies greater than 13.6 electron volts. Carbon will also be ionized in those areas um, because it has that lower ionization potential, but it will also be ionized in these areas that we call photo disassociation regions or PDRs that we can kind of think of as like almost an onion layer, kind of a shell around a star forming region. So this would be an area where hydrogen is going to be neutral. So we're surrounding, we're near young stars. So there's still young stars outputting um, high energy light but we've kind of run out of the really, really high energy light, the photons with energies above 13.6 electron volts. So there's none of those left, but there's still plenty of, electro of photons with energies between 11.3 and 13.6 electron volts that can ionize the carbon and create this singly ionized carbon that, creates the, that emits the emission line I'm interested in. That's pretty cool. So it sounds like ionized carbon is like the improv partner to ionized hydrogen, that wherever you have ionized hydrogen, you're going to have ionized carbon. And it's a yes and situation because you can have ionized carbon outside of that region as well. It's sort of like if I asked you for like the boundary of where Jessica is and you drew an outline of your body and that's ionized hydrogen. Um, if I stood up on a like charged up Van de Graaff generator, all the tiny hairs on your body, uh, then maybe that's also where ionized carbon is that you, oh yeah, like I'm going to have this sort of region around the ionized hydrogen region that, yeah, the ionized hydrogen region has ionized carbon, but also there's this extra region where, sure, I don't have my photons, my light that's powerful enough to ionize hydrogen, but for a little while longer, I can still ionize carbon. Yeah, I like to think of it, maybe this is like the physicist in me, I like to think of it as an onion, because, you know, onions are semi-spherical, so this is my version of a spherical cow. Um, so our star-forming region is like the core of the onion, 
And then where the carbon is ionized might be the next onion layer around it. So um, we can kind of think of star forming regions as onions with lots of layers and what's ionized in each layer might be different. So in the central region, hydrogen is ionized and carbon is ionized. And in the next layer out, hydrogen is neutral, but carbon will still be ionized. And so um, we can kind of work our way out through different types, um, through different layers and different types of compositions. I see. So if you so an onion is a great analogy. And then if you wanted to make it like an actual shape, I guess it's sort of this onion potato hybrid that you're going to have yeah. like a potato. It might have holes. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. A, a potato shape, but an onion structure. Yeah. I mean, star forming regions, the ones we see pictures of in our own galaxy, people look at them and come up with all kinds of names. So there's like the running chicken nebula. There's, I mean, obviously in Orion, there's the Eagle Nebula, there's the Pillars of Creation. So they can come in all sorts of sizes and shapes, but I like to pretend that they're spherical. <laughs> well, have you, can I ask you, have you gotten a chance to look at any uh, named regions? And do you have a favorite named region that you've gotten to observe on? Um. So I'm primarily an extragalactic astronomer, which means the extra means that I don't look at the Milky Way, I look at other galaxies. So I don't, the regions I look at are mostly in other galaxies and they typically don't have names. I do have a favorite galaxy, um, NGC 6946, which is also called the Fireworks Galaxy. It's a really beautiful face on spiral. So we can see kind of all the grand design spiral. It's got lots of arms. Um, it's called fireworks because it's had a few supernova go off in it in the past few years we've been able to observe. Um, but it's a very beautiful galaxy. And if you do want to pause and just admire the beauty of the universe, searching for NGC 6946 or the fireworks galaxy is a, is a good one. <laughs> well, that's that's a pretty fascinating name. I'm, I'm actually partial uh, in a lot of ways to another galaxy that I know you've observed, which is NGC 7331. And part of the reason I like that galaxy so much is it looks like a pretty typical spiral galaxy that honestly probably has a lot in common with our own Milky Way. But one of the reasons I love it is because it really shows off what the universe is like, because right nearby NGC 7331 are about five other pretty prominent but smaller looking spiral galaxies. And two of them look quite a bit smaller, and then three of them look much, much, much smaller. But the fact is, the reason they look that way is because they are giving us a distance perspective. We are seeing more distant galaxies, and that's why they look smaller, because they're farther away. And that that's an image that I always like looking at because it helps impress on me how big the scale of the universe is, that we see these these distant galaxies and they may look smaller and smaller and smaller the farther away they are, but each one of those big spiral galaxies is in its own way just as impressive as our own Milky Way. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And even like, I love, one of the fun things about being an astronomer is we get to talk about distances in a way that like, no one else can because I study the nearby universe, which means the galaxies I look at are for the most part less than a hundred million light years away. So, you know, 
right nearby, um, but like what distances it are and like how um, we can see in the nearby ones like NGC 7331, we really get this like awe-inspiring detail, even though it's 14 megaparsecs, so about um, 45-ish million light years away, even though it's that far away, we can see individual um, spiral arms in this, we can tell the difference between the different environments, the different structures in this galaxy, um, since it is just so mind-blowingly large. <laughs> yeah, and if you get a good enough telescope, like I know Hubble can do it, and so I'm pretty sure James Webb can do it, you even have the ability to resolve individual stars in galaxies as far as 50 or 60 million light years away, which is just phenomenal to me because it was revolutionary. It literally changed our conception of the universe when we were to able to measure individual stars in the galaxy right next door in the Andromeda galaxy. And here we are, uh, you know, less than a century later after we did that, and we're able to measure galaxies that are, you know, Sure, nearby, but also a significant fraction of the entire observable universe away. Yeah, and it's just, it's always mind-blowing. I, I got to teach um, galactic astronomy last fall, two falls ago, fall 2020, um, and getting to talk about how it was really only a year, a hundred years ago that we realized there were other galaxies. <laughs> it's just... The, the, the amount that um, astronomy has grown in the past 100 years is just phenomenal, and it's such an exciting time to be an astronomer. There's so much more to learn. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and here we are where we have the tools where we're doing exactly that. So when I see a what I guess I'll call a, a C2 region, where I see a region, like I'm, I'm imagining that I'm a... Uh, I'm imagining that I'm like, I don't know, like your student, and that uh, this is my first time observing in the far infrared. And you tell me, okay, we're going to go and we're going to look at this galaxy and we're going to map out where the C2 is. We're going to use this emission line. We're going to use this fine structure constant or the fine structure of this ionized carbon. And what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, where we see this, we're going to take data and we're going to get a map of the intensity and the flux coming from this galaxy. And this is going to map out where the ionized carbon is. And when we do this, um, we're not necessarily only getting star forming regions, although we will be getting star forming regions, we're going to be basically seeing what you call these photo dissociation regions everywhere. So we're going to get star forming regions and also non star forming regions that still have this photo dissociative property to them. What do we learn? What are we looking at? When I say, you know, okay, we're going to make this map and you show me this map and I say, okay, well, what am I looking at? Like we've mapped out where this ionized carbon is because we see the emission signature that announces its presence. But what does that teach us and what does that show us? It's a great question. So there's, and it's a question that a little bit like part of my thesis I wrote, C plus is this hammer that's in search of a nail. So we're trying to figure out what measurements of C plus really tell us. So what measurements of 
um, the singly ionized carbon C2 or C plus, sorry, <laughs> um, tell us about the galaxy. Uh, and one of the things that we're pretty sure that C plus, one of the things we know about C plus is that it's one of the most important infrared cooling lines for galaxies. And so what that means is that um, as galaxies heat up, they heat up because young stars are emitting a lot of high energy light. And so that high energy light can heat up the gas, it can heat up the dust grains, um, and we need to be able to, um, galaxies need to be able to radiate that heat away somehow to cool down. So we're not, if you're pouring energy into your galaxy, there needs to be a way for that energy to eventually escape. And as you said earlier, um, optical lines, optical light get blocked and so um, get blocked by the dust. So that's kind of trapping the heat in. It's maybe sort of in a way similar to like thinking about global warming, like we're trapping the infrared emission in our, in our atmosphere. Um, galaxies are trapping optical emission and that kind of heats them up. So they need a way to radiate it away. And the main way they do that is through these far infrared fine structure lines. Because those these lines exist in the infrared, um, they can penetrate gas and dust, they can escape, and they can carry energy away. Um, and so that allows galaxies to cool down. So being able to measure the carbon emission tells me something about that there's an energetic process happening in this galaxy. And then we're seeing um, how the carbon is allowing the galaxy to radiate that um, energy away and cool down and stay somewhere near thermal equilibrium. Um, galaxies aren't necessarily closed systems. They don't need to be exactly in equilibrium, but they should be kind of approximately close to equilibrium over large times, large enough time scales. You know, you you just said something that is so interesting to me that I'm going to ask you a question that, uh, you know, I, I'm worried this might be really, really wrong, but I'm putting a few different things together here. The fact that when you form new stars, right, this, this always happens in a region where you have a large molecular cloud that is collapsing under it under its own gravity and it has to cool enough so that you can form these dense clumps of matter where new stars will form but then you form these new stars and they inject a bunch of energy um and once these stars form right once you have nuclear fusion happening in the core um it starts to sort of put an end to the star formation. It sort of starts to sort of exert this feedback where you inject energy into it and you can't continue to gravitationally collapse because um, you've injected too much energy in it. So, you know, this heat prevents you from collapsing because you've added a bunch of energy to it. So is it fair to say that this C2 and the N2 and the like all of these heavy elements, the elements heavier than helium that are ionized and they radiate energy away very efficiently, are they the reason why we can continue to form stars in these regions for so long? Because they're not trapping the heat and getting too hot to form new stars. And if so, does that mean that quantum mechanics, and in particular, these quantum mechanical transitions of the electrons from one spin state to the other, where they emit this energy, that that's responsible, that that's the reason why we have as many stars in the universe as we do? That's a really 
interesting way to put that. I have to, I'm kind of like thinking about it. I think feedback is a very um, hotly debated subject um, when we think about galaxy evolution. And there's a lot that can go into it in that the um, star formation, as you rightly put, can slow down future star formation because it keeps things up and st stops gravitational collapse. But there's also some situations where star formation could potentially lead to more future star formation um, through things like supernova when young star, when O and B stars that don't live very long explode, that can cause shocks that cause some of the gas um, surrounding it to get to a dense enough state that it could collapse and form new stars as well. So there's a lot happening there. Um, the C plus emission is also coming from those regions and it's allowing them to cool down and maintain um, an energy balance that they wouldn't be able to if there weren't these heavier elements. So it is very important. Um, we of course um, do see there are other ways to cool and there, um, this isn't the only option, um, but it's one of the main ones. And so um, it's a good way to efficiently, um, efficiently reprocess this energy and get back to a state that we can there where we can form future stars. That's that's pretty profound. Like that's that's really pretty profound because you know normally I think about things that happen in the far infrared as you know okay like this is this is a signature of something else that's happening. I don't think of it as a driving force behind something that, for example, balances the galaxy, that is primarily responsible for radiating energy away and from keeping the galaxy cool. Um, and yet you're telling me that that's, that's kind of exactly what happens, that if you didn't have these molecules there, and this will be an interesting thing that I hope James Webb discovers, um, because it's going to be looking at stars that quite possibly existed before any heavy elements were present with just hydrogen and helium. Uh, this has profound implications for how the very first generation of stars was fundamentally different from all the generations that came after it because the lack of these heavy elements the lack of carbon, the lack of oxygen, the lack of nitrogen means that it can't efficiently radiate heat away. So it might have, um, you know, overheating problems that the all the stars and galaxies we've ever observed up until today, early 2022, uh, that that we've just never observed that before. I want to add something to be really, really careful here, because if you don't have heavy elements, you're also gonna have a lot less dust. And if you don't have dust, it's a lot easier to radiate energy away. So the reason these far infrared lines are really important cooling lines for galaxies like the Milky Way and NGC 7331 is that they are enriched in heavy elements and they also have a lot of dust. And that dust blocks the optical light, exactly like you said earlier. Um, but in the really early universe galaxies that don't have a lot of these heavy elements, they'll also have a lot less dust because the dust is going to be primarily made of heavy elements, which means in those cases, it might be um, less necessary for these far infrared lines to act as cooling lines. We might be able to just radiate optical emission and have it escape. 
Um, and we do somewhat see this in the local universe when we look at um, low metallicity dwarf galaxies. So nearby dwarf galaxies that have fewer heavy elements than galaxies like the Milky Way and NGC 7331. They also seem to have um, a more porous ISM. So a more porous interstellar medium where there's kind of more holes, more places where ultraviolet and optical light can escape. So the energy balance in those galaxies is different. They still have cooling from far infrared um, fine structure lines, um, but there's kind of a different proportion of it because we're also seeing um, less infrared heating than we are when we look at these enriched galaxies. So the very, very distant galaxies will likely be very, very, very different. Um, exactly how they are different is going to be a really interesting thing to learn. <laughs> Wow, that's actually very profound. You know, one of the one of the themes that longtime listeners of this podcast will notice comes up over and over again is the importance of multi-wavelength or even pan-wavelength coverage because you have different types of information encoded in each window of wavelengths that you look at. And I think that's a really profound realization that to say, yes, you know, this carbon, this nitrogen, right, these these ionized metals, these astronaut well, astronomical metals at any rate. Um, you know, what they do is they are very efficient radiators of heat and energy, but that type of radiation is most needed where you have copious amounts of dust. So now you've got me curious when we map out these galaxies and we say, okay, where is my ionized carbon emitting the signal? Where is my ionized nitrogen emitting the signal? Um, do you only see those signals um, where you see thick layers of dust? Or do you see them all over and you get a totally different map of the galaxy when you look in ionized carbon as opposed to when you look at where is the dust? So it's somewhere in between. So it's not completely different. It's definitely, there are definitely similarities. So um, the galaxy I studied, NGC 7331, has a really prominent ring of dust around its center. And that ring of dust is extremely bright in the infrared. And it's also pretty bright in carbon emission. So um, in the C plus emission. So we see it both as bright in the infrared and in C plus. The center of this galaxy, the nucleus, is really bright in the infrared, but it's not very bright in carbon emission. Why that is, is we're not exactly sure, but um, it does seem to have a pretty high brightness in the infrared where it has a, while it also has a pretty low um, C plus emission in that, in the very center. In the disk and the arms of this galaxy um, are both lower brightness in the far infrared and in C plus emission. Um, but if you take the ratio of C plus to far infrared, um, it was actually, we saw it was the highest when we looked in the disk. So it's, they're both lower, but proportionately the C plus emission is higher than the far infrared there. Um, so it's a little complicated. We usually, I often think in ratios, so it's kind of keeping that straight can be a little tricky. <laughs> 
No, I I don't I don't blame you for that. I mean, when you when you think in ratios, converting to absolutes is pretty difficult. Um, but I'm I'm a little bit fascinated by this because I would think that look, you would look for ionized carbon where you would look for you know okay I've got matter everywhere and so if I have a lot of ultraviolet radiation or you know a lot of stars or a lot of recently formed stars um, I would expect that okay my my ionized carbon regions my C plus or C2 or whatever you want to call it uh, that's where that's going to be located it's going to be found where you have those you know sites where energy is actively being injected and what you're telling me is uh that's definitely part of the story but also that's probably not the full story and i don't think i realized when i started asking you these questions that um it's possible that we don't fully understand the story, that we can make these maps, but that the connection between what we're observing and what those observations indicate uh, is not a puzzle that's been completely solved just yet. That's why I researched this, I guess, is I think there still are a lot of questions we still have to answer. Um, and this is especially exciting, um, I think, because we're getting all of, with ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, we're getting a lot of detections of the C-plus emission line in galaxies at redshifts of four to nine, so really early universe galaxies. So in theory, if we know enough about this emission line that we can use it to say, okay, there's this much carbon emission, there must be also this many baby stars, there must be this much, the star formation rate must be x if the carbon emission is y if we could use that we could determine how galaxies at the very beginning of the universe are forming stars because we have those carbon to we have this um, c plus emission measurements from those galaxies but when we look at galaxies in the local universe and especially when we look at these local measurements where we're seeing individual regions in galaxies we see that it gets a little bit more complicated and that um the carbon emission can be excited by young stars. It can also be excited by shocks, which can be related to young stars, but it could also be, um, so it can be from supernova, but it could also be from galaxies colliding um, and can be from other sources as well. And we've also been able to see, um, especially in some local universe dwarf galaxies, that there are places where there's molecular hydrogen um, that isn't traced by carbon monoxide, which is usually what we use to trace um, molecular hydrogen, but does have C plus emission. So there's this idea it could trace star formation, it could trace shocks, and it could trace um, CO dark molecular gas. Um, so there's all these kind of things that we think maybe this is what it's what we can use it for. Um, and we have all of these measurements of it from across the universe, but really nailing down how it how it works as a um, indicator of galaxy properties i would i would say that we're not quite there yet but that's <laughs> that's my opinion as a local universe astronomer and people might might somewhat disagree with that you know one of the one of the things that i learned from my brief brief foray uh into observational astronomy is that when you work on a paper when you take your data um, 
you are the only one who doubts it, right? You, you, you analyze it, you look for all the different sources of error, you know how to, you do this careful, careful uncertainty analysis, uh, and then you publish your paper, and everyone who uses the results for your paper just sort of takes it as, this is true. And um, you know, you are the one who's aware of all the uncertainties, all the things we don't know, and then people go and use it like it is absolutely certain, like it's gospel. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of was told like, and, uh, you know, just don't pay attention to what people are using your data to conclude because uh, it will drive you crazy because you will have the instinct to be like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. That You can't do that. Um, and yet, yet I, I, I don't know how to avoid that because uh, when I read your paper about the observations of NGC 7331 that you uh, put out with uh, Dario Fada, I... I said, oh my, look at this surprise. If I look at NGC 7331, I see here's a spiral galaxy. It's got a bright core. It's got uh, a central region where the stellar brightness looks like it dims. And then you have sort of this outer region with the rich spiral arms and the dust lanes and all of that. And when I look at a map of the singly ionized carbon. When I look at a map of the C2, the C+, you know, whatever you want to call it, the most prominent feature I notice is there is this bright ring that runs through the plane of the galaxy. That interior to the ring, uh, it's much less emission. Exterior to the ring, it's much less emission. Um, but you have, like, basically this little... Uh, you know, donut in space that seems to line your galaxy with this uh, ionized carbon. And I wonder, now listening to you talk about this, are we confident that this is a ring? And is does the presence of that ring, if we can believe that it's real, does it teach us anything about what's happening in this galaxy? I'm going to say we're, we're pretty confident it's a ring and we don't just see it in singly ionized carbon. We also see it in the infrared. So it's not only there in carbon, it's also there um, in infrared. And we could see, um, although it's not super bright in um, ultraviolet or optical, especially looking at HST images of this galaxy, we can see really prominent optical um sorry, um, optical Hubble Space Telescope images of this galaxy, we can see really prominent dust lanes along where this, um, where we see the super bright infrared and um, C2 emission. And so that tells us that there is something there. There is definitely uh, this kind of donut of dust surrounding the center of this galaxy, this ring of dust um, that is probably heated by young stars. Um, so that's why it would be both bright in the infrared and in C+. And it's also one of the reasons why we can say that this galaxy is likely similar to the Milky Way. We're not sure, but we think the Milky Way has a um, circumnuclear ring like this one. So a ring of um, dust and stars around its center. Um, Andromeda also has a pretty prominent circumnuclear ring. Um, in Andromeda, there's some suggestion that that could have been formed by a past collision um, with another galaxy, but it's uncertain. Um, so 
what what exactly this tells us about the galaxy about NGC 7331 um, is somewhat unclear, but we are pretty certain that there is a circumnuclear ring that is bright both in the infrared and in the C plus emission, and much brighter than the nucleus, the center of this galaxy, which probably suggests that the nucleus is mostly composed of older stars and there's fewer younger stars where the circumnuclear ring um, has both a lot of dust and quite a bit of current star formation. You know, one of the things that that gets me really jazzed about studies of the local universe is uh, that I think those types of studies can really teach us more about our Milky Way in many ways than we can learn by observing our own Milky Way. It's sort of like if I were to ask you, um, what my eye color is. If we lived in a world without mirrors or reflective surfaces, uh, I would have no way to know. I would have no way to know what my eye color is unless someone else looked at my eyes from the outside and was able to tell me because you can see my eye color when you look at me and I can see your eye color when I look at you, but we can't see our own eye color unless we have a reflective surface. So we can't really tell all that much about our Milky Way. Like our Milky Way has enormous uncertainties to it because we're stuck within it. We can't travel out of the Milky Way and get an external view of what we look like. So when we look at a galaxy like Andromeda, that's that's nearby, that's helpful, but it's only one galaxy. I wonder when you take observations of NGC 7331 and you see that ring and then you tell me like, yeah, and we think this Milky Way, that our Milky Way has a ring like that too, that makes me wonder, wow, well, based on the distances at which these rings show up, does that actually mean that where we are with our sun about 27,000 light years away from the Milky Way center? Does that mean we actually live in an ionized carbon-rich ring? Are we in that ring that should be present in the Milky Way? No, the, the rings should be much, much smaller in radius than where we are. Um, so I'm trying to think if I can remember how big. Um, I think in NGC 7331, the ring we saw started um, maybe like one kiloparsec from the center and had a width of one or two, trying to picture this plot in my head. Um, so it's, they're pretty close to the center. So we would not be within the Milky Way's ring. Okay, so you're saying like in this galaxy that we're looking at, we're saying like 3,000 to 10,000 light years, uh, not out at like 20 and change light years. Thousands, yeah, yeah. So we call these circumnuclear rings because they're really constrained around the nucleus of the galaxy. So they, they do seem to be, they're not the center, but they're pretty close to the center. Okay, okay. That's, geez. These galaxies are so fascinating and they're so different from, you know, I think what your instinct tells you. Um, maybe not what your instinct tells you because you've worked on them enough that you have an intuition for what they should be like in the far infrared. Uh, but I'm not a far infrared astronomer. And this is uh, 
this this so far is full of surprises to me. Um, I am realizing how humbled I am that I have so much to learn about about all of this. Another thing that I noticed from your uh, paper is, you know, one of the things you mentioned was was ratios. Uh, and one of the ratios that sort of jumped out as me um, is if you looked at how much of the total energy from the far infrared is emitted in this ionized carbon, um, this actually changes by quite a bit over, you know, the brightness range of the galaxy. Um, that when you sort of look at the brightest, uh, most energetic regions that glow in the far infrared, um, you're actually saying, you know, um, we only have a small fraction, maybe like a tenth of a percent or less of the energy is emitted in this uh, this ionized carbon. But if we look at like where that ring is, or we look in the disk of the galaxy, or we look at, um, I think, uh, the arms of the galaxy had the highest carbon to ratios that you're actually finding regions where you get like 10 20 50 times as much uh of your emission is coming from this radiating carbon um and that and that i think uh geez i don't know why that is why where you have like the brightest regions, the most infrared emission regions, do you have the the smallest percentage in carbon two, and that down in the in the ring and the disc and the arms, why is that where you have the greatest fraction of your energy is in this ionized carbon? If I could answer that question, <laughs> I would that would solve so many problems. Um no, so that's that's a really good question, and that's one that um, was somewhat the focus of my thesis work, um, and is also something that I'm really interested in continuing to pursue answers to. Um, what you just described, the decreasing trend in the C plus emission, um, divided by the um, far infrared emission as we go to brighter far infrared sources, um, that's often called the C plus deficit um, because we're seeing less C plus emission than we would expect for the amount of far infrared emission as we go to these brighter sources. There's been a lot of proposed solutions to why we see this, but none completely seems to answer why this happens yet. So there's ideas that there's other things that are compensating for the cooling. So as we go to hotter regions, maybe neutral oxygen, um, far infrared fine structure lines from neutral oxygen are providing more of the cooling than the C pluses. The problem with that is that um, there have been papers that have looked at the C plus and the O1 lines um, as a in galaxies, and they also see a deficit when they look at that. So the C plus plus the oxygen is also de divided by the infrared is also decreasing as we go to these brighter sources. Um, a very popular theory, um, it doesn't always seem to work, but one that um, is cited quite a bit and seems to be a part of the uh, solution is that these brighter infrared regions 
Um, as you go to galaxies that are really bright in the infrared, they're less efficient at heating. And this is gets a little complicated um, because we have to think about what we mean by heating when we think about um, galaxies. And so temperature, when we think um, temperature is kind of the motion of the the atoms in the galaxy. So the motion of the electrons often. So we need sources of electrons um, in order to write heating. And in photo disassociation regions, those sources of electrons are primarily these really small dust grains called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs. And as um, these PAHs start to lose electrons, they become positively charged because they're losing electrons. And so it's harder to free an electron from that PAH that is already positively charged. So it's you need higher energy radiation to kick off more electrons. So what that might mean is that as we go to these galaxies that are really, really, really infrared bright, or these areas in a single galaxy that are really, really infrared bright, um, dumping more energy in doesn't lead to the same amount of heating. So we're getting to a point where it's you need to keep adding more and more and more and more energy to produce the same increase in temperature, sort of temperature being kind of a weird term when we talk about the interstellar medium of galaxies. But um, that's a pretty common um, explanation for why we see this deficit is that heating is becoming less efficient. So if heating is less efficient, then we need less cooling. So we see less carbon emission. But that's probably only part of the story because we're also able to measure emission from PAHs. And we also tend to see there's a lot of scatter in these relationships. But when we look at the emission from C plus um, in, with respect to the PAH emission, we also see that there, there tends to be a bit of a deficit there as well. So that's maybe part of the picture, but not the full picture. There's a lot going on. And like I said, if I could answer this question, I, I would be able to publish another paper and solve a lot of issues for people who study this emission. Um, but we don't exactly know at this point. You know, and I think I think that's absolutely fair because, you know, you're you're primarily an observer. And when I think about observation, I think, you know, okay, look, the most important thing isn't to sort of solve what's the underlying theory behind all of this. Instead, the most important thing is to notice what is related to what, is to sort of, can I draw these correlations? Can I express these relationships? Can I, can I say, um, when I see this property, uh, here's what it means for these other properties. And it seems like that's actually been a very successful thing to come out of the type of research that you do. Um, like you can say, okay, I'm going to draw a correlation between how bright these ionized carbon emissions are versus how much is the attenuated ultraviolet emission and you can say actually look check this out there's a really good correlation from that more attenuated ultraviolet emission 
is is great because that means you're going to have more of this c2 emission like that's the c2 emission is going to be brighter um and that seems to be a really solid correlation that holds across all these different regions of the galaxies but then um you know you're like okay and what can i use that to tell me about the carbon emission as a fraction of the total infrared emission and the answer turns out to be nope that's a completely separate correlation these things don't appear to be related from one to the other the ultraviolet emission and the carbon emission appear to be correlated the carbon emission and the far infrared emission uh they are correlated in a completely different way yeah, and I did, I got to work um, with some theorists in my last project, which was really fun. And they helped me a lot in trying to actually come up with the math uh, and the physics to describe what we were seeing. So um, before I focused on NGC 7331, I was working with a group um, called Kingfish. Um, and so that stands for Key Insights in Nearby Galaxies, a far infrared survey with Herschel. Um, so that's another crazy astronomy acronym. Um, and they, that team had measurements from a broader selection of galaxies in the nearby universe in the far infrared and at some of these far infrared fine structure lines. Um, and so for 30 of those galaxies, for 30 star forming regions in those galaxies, um, we had both C plus and nitrogen too, and we were able to really model the ISM within those star forming regions and come up with an explanation for why we were seeing a deficit in those specific regions. The problem is that sample um, was only looking at nuclear star forming regions of my advisor like to call them ultra normal galaxies. So it could describe the C plus deficit for those regions, but it probably couldn't describe the C plus deficit for ultraluminous infrared galaxies or ULERGs. So like even as an observational astronomer, it's like I can get really into the details of like every galaxy is unique and we need to understand each one. And like the properties of the different parts are all gonna be different. And when we look at them globally, when we look at the measurements from just a single galaxy, it's gonna be different than if we look at the measurements from individual parts of that galaxy. And so trying to piece together what that means. Um, we really need these big teams and getting to collaborate with people who do more of the theory side has been a lot of fun. Wow. So that's, that's, that's interesting to hear. I'm, I'm curious, like my brain is kind of spinning a mile a minute here because I'm wondering like, okay, um, you know, what could happen to cause there to be more or less C2 emission? And part of me thinks like, okay, well, does this depend on the ionization fraction of carbon in a particular region? For example, um, if I have only a little bit of energy above these, uh, you know, 11 point uh, something electron volt photons being in there. Uh, maybe I only have a little bit of C2. And at the same time, maybe if I have these very hot regions, uh, maybe it's easier to knock more than one electron off of carbon. So I can have other lines that are just fine. Um, but maybe I don't have great C2 lines. Maybe, maybe most of the carbon is C4 now. Um, 
or maybe most of the carbon is neutral and maybe there should be an anti-correlation between where I have carbon monoxide that's neutral versus where I have singly ionized carbon. Um, and again, I don't know if any of that is even reasonable, but I would, I would start to wonder like, what is the connection between where you have this ionized uh, carbon making its strong emissions versus what is the overall um, energy density or temperature being injected into the matter that's present at this location? You said a lot of interesting things. I'm sorry, like processing as well. Um, I think one of the things that like popped into my brain while you were talking is again, when we look at these dwarf galaxies that do tend to have a lot of star formation, um, what we see in a lot of them is that there is bright carbon too, there is bright C plus emission, but there's very, very, very bright um, oxygen three emission. So this is doubly ionized oxygen. Um, so that could be telling us that um, the carbon in those regions, there is still some singly ionized carbon, but there's also probably a lot of doubly ionized carbon, which is, which is why this um, oxygen line takes over, this doubly ionized oxygen line um, takes over and becomes one of the more important cooling channels. Interesting. And there, there is one of the reasons, the explanations for the C plus deficit that has been proposed is that especially around um, active galactic nuclei, carbon will be in higher ionization states that could limit the amount of C plus emission we see. So that definitely is part of the picture as well. <laughs> wow. I mean, every time, I, I, this is probably true in most areas of astronomy, is that every time you think you've got something figured out and then you go and you take a deeper look, you discover that actually there are these additional variables that are coming into play and they're not uh, important or a driving force in every circumstance, but sometimes there are and you ignore them at your own peril. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and what what's important in one galaxy might not be important in another and it could be dependent on the composition it could be dependent on the structure it could be dependent on how recently this galaxy collided with another galaxy there's there's a lot of there's a lot of parameters that can can really change what we see <laughs> So I want to come back to this idea of an energy balance, because that's, that's what you said is like one of the primary things about what's being radiated in the far infrared is when, when you have these atoms, molecules, ions, etc., that are radiating energy away, um, this helps keep uh, the interstellar medium balanced at a particular set of properties, right? Energy in has to equal energy out. Otherwise, your thing will either heat or cool until it reaches that energy equilibrium. Um, so when we look at where we have these uh, these copious amounts of ionized carbon emissions, when we look at what appears in the far infrared, um, are most of these regions like where it's bright are they at the same temperature do they have roughly the same amounts of energy density in them or do they not is there a wide range of things that of energy density ranges that it spans and you see carbon emission just where you happen to see carbon emission or are there 
are there some very interesting and compelling links that you can make from, okay, if I see this type of carbon emission, this definitely means uh, I have a star forming region. And if I see that type of carbon emission, that is more of an indication that I have uh, a large amount of stars, but that they're not, but that they're not brand new stars, or that that I have a, a lot of uh, cataclysms that have occurred in this region recently, but that um, you know aren't necessarily being driven by new stars. Or does it mean like actually this is a pretty uh, dust-free or dust-rich region? Or is this again a case where, well, yeah, it's sometimes all of the above, and it really depends on a series of complicated um, interactions that are at play. I am hopeful that we can do a bit of distinguishing depending on um, what the carbon looks like to, to tell what this energy source is, whether it's young stars, potentially older stars, or cataclysms, as you said. Um, that's something that um, I'm still working on. I, I, I will like an active field of research. I think not just me, but a lot of people are still um, investigating. Um, a lot of times the carbon emission alone isn't going to be enough, in my opinion. But if you have the carbon emission and some indicator of the infrared emission, then that can be, um, there's a paper by um, Dr. Rodrigo Herrera Camus from 2015 that shows that um, if you have both of those, you can get a really good indicator of star formation rate. And so you can reduce the uncertainty that you get if you just use um, C plus emission alone. Um, there's other work. So some of the stuff I've done is using the carbon emission um, and the nitrogen emission and putting those two things together can allow you to constrain, um, to better constrain what fraction of the carbon emission you're seeing is coming from photo disassociation regions, which can then allow you to use um, the carbon emission along with oxygen emission, typically in far infrared emission, to get an idea of the density and the amount of far, and far ultraviolet um, emission within those PDR regions. Um, so, a lot of times right now, um, the carbon emission alone might not be enough. You can get an idea of something like the star formation rate. That's typically what it's used for is to get an estimate of the star formation rate. Um, but there's going to be some pretty big error bars on that measurement. Um, so if you have more data, then you can constrain that better. Um, but it's really dependent on what kind of measurements. As you mentioned earlier, the more multi-wavelength we can have, the better. Um, so the there there is there are a lot of ways we can use this emission but um it's helpful at the moment if you have a little bit of other information about your galaxy no and that's and that's perfectly fine and also pretty smart so if you because one of the goals of astronomy is we want this full wavelength coverage so if you could say okay i've got this galaxy and i've mapped out the carbon emissions the, the ionized carbon emissions coming from it, where they are, how strong they are, what other pieces of information would you want to know? What other pieces of information would you say, these are going to be the clues to resolving what this emission means? This is going to be the key to resolving what the energy balance in this region of the galaxy is. What what other things would you want to know that would sort of be those complementary pieces of information? You you mentioned a few, 
um, about what you can learn, for instance, from looking at uh, the uh, the near infrared emissions. But what what would be the other things you'd want to know? Would you want to know things like what the supernova rates are? Would you want to know things like what are the uh, star forming rates at various points in the galaxy? Would it help to have a uh, ionized hydrogen map of the galaxy? What what are the other pieces of information uh, and what do they teach you? I'm very interested. I think we can learn a lot if we can resolve our galaxy. And so by that, I just mean like we can see the structures within it. So we can see what kind of, um, if, it, if it has a ring, if it has um, spiral arm structures, if it is more, um, we call it flocculent, but it just means like if the arms are really fluffy, um, if the arms are kind of well-defined or if they're kind of more fuzzy. Um, so how that might, that might give us some idea of what we might expect from these regions. Um, there are optical emission lines um, that can be really helpful as well to determining what the source of ionizing radiation is. So these are hydrogen lines as well as there's um, some nitrogen and oxygen lines that if you use them together, you can get an idea of what the source of the ionizing ratio, uh, what, what the source of the ionizing photons are. And so that ionizing so photon source could be supernovas, it could be young stars, or it could be an active galactic nuclei, kind of depending on what type of galaxy you're looking at. So having that information could be really helpful. I'm often looking at, um, like you said, like the mid-infrared um, features, which can be from the small, um, small polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon dust grains, as well as just kind of the broad far infrared emission. So out underneath these lines, there's just a big um, peak in far infrared emission that comes from larger dust grains radiating um, energy. And knowing what those are doing can be really helpful, knowing how much far infrared emission there is um, tells us a lot about the dust properties as well as um, as well as the heating in the galaxy. So having a measurement of not only the emission lines, but also just the total far infrared luminosity can be really helpful to figuring out um, what's going on in the galaxy. And we do see that galaxies that have recently undergone collisions have really high C plus over far infrared emission. Um, and so that can tell us something as well. Um, so that's a measurement that I really like to get. I'm somewhat biased towards the far infrared um, part, but there's a lot of um, useful information in the optical as well as other wavelength bands that um, can, can really help uh, constrain what we're seeing when we look at galaxies. That's really a wonderful answer when we talk about, um, you know, what you would learn when you start to combine uh, these far infrared observations with observations in other parts of the spectrum. One thing that I've that I'm also really interested to know is, you know, there's always a push, no matter what wavelength range we're looking at, to say, okay, if I had a better observatory, right? Where a better observatory typically means I'm going to get better spatial resolution, better energy resolution, better wavelength coverage. Um, you know, where where that's the advances you get from building a bigger and more sensitive observatory. Um, if we had that in the far infrared, if we had something like Origin Space Telescope, um, what would we be able to learn 
about galaxies by observing them in the far infrared that we can't know today? How would a next generation far infrared observatory help us revolutionize not only how we understand, you know, certain aspects of, you know, what was the time scale of a galactic merger in this galaxy, but what would be the big thing we'd be able to learn? What would what would we learn what are the advances that you would look forward to if we got a novel revolutionary flagship level observatory well you mentioned increases in spatial resolution and that's something i think in the far infrared that everyone would really love to see um, one of the things that's tricky about doing infra doing ob taking observations in the far infrared is that as our wavelengths get longer it becomes more difficult to um, get high spatial resolution. So we have these longer wavelengths and it's hard to see from the ground. So it's hard to build a big telescope um, that we would need in order to really resolve the um, kind of structures that we see in galaxies. And being able to resolve individual star forming regions and really see how they look different in different parts could help us uh, understand um, exactly where within the galaxies the C plus emission is either enhanced or um, restricted. Um, like where, and then that can tell us exactly what kind of processes are causing the effects that we see. So like right now, the, the resolution I have um, with Sophia, the, the map that I had had a resolution of 15.6 arc seconds which I think corresponded to over around a kiloparsec. So, you know, 3000 light years ish, um, which means I can't see anything. I can't tell the difference between scales smaller than 3000 light years in this nearby galaxy. Um, that is that is absurd. I mean, you know, not like not like to deride what you're saying, but you're basically saying, okay, like if we were here in the Milky Way, or if we were looking at the Milky Way from NGC seven three three one, um, then you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the Orion Nebula and Earth. And you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the Omega Nebula and the Eagle Nebula, or the Lagoon Nebula and the Trifid Nebula, that these things are all close enough to one another, even though they are their own isolated areas and regions with their own properties, they would all be blurred together into a single pixel or maybe spread out over two or three pixels between all of them combined with our current technology. Yeah, and it's 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 tricky. Like with Herschel, we got slightly better resolution, but when you're in the far infrared, it's just hard to get good resolution. And even even with these space-based telescopes, um, when you start to get to longer wavelengths, like I've looked at um, some of the 250 to 500 micron data and your resolution just keeps getting lower and lower to the to, to the point that even looking at um, nearby galaxies you're getting maybe one or two unique data points and slightly more than that that's a that's an exaggeration I should say um, but it becomes really difficult to tell how the different different parts of the galaxy are behaving differently. So if we could increase that spatial resolution, 
um, it could be really useful to being able to see um, exactly what is going on inside these other galaxies. Now, at still longer wavelengths than the far infrared, we can use techniques that are leveraged by things like ALMA or the Event Horizon Telescope, where we can sort of sync up observations between different telescopes that are observing in the same wavelength at the same time, located at great distances from one another. Normally, the resolution you can achieve is based on how many wavelengths of light of whatever wavelength you're looking at fit across your telescope. So when you're looking in the far infrared and you're talking about wavelengths that are hundreds or thousands of times longer than your visible light telescope, you're talking about resolutions that are tens or hundreds or thousands of times poorer. Would this be a viable, feasible thing to accomplish if your goal was to get this higher resolution? Is there a chance that interferometry, because it gives you the light gathering power of your individual telescopes combined, but it gets you resolutions that are at the separation distances between your telescopes, is that a potential game changer for far infrared astronomy. So the thing that makes that tricky in the far infrared is back to what we were talking about in the beginning and that our atmosphere is pretty opaque to far infrared light. So we can't we can't build a big interferometer on Earth. We would have to build one in space, which adds a layer of difficulty. Um <laughs> I I do not know of any projects that are attempting to do this or discussing whether or not this is a possibility. Um, but yeah, we can't, Alma, like you said, is can do this partially because um, there are places in the millimeter um, range where the atmosphere is transparent. So they're able to do this from the ground. Um, with the far infrared, you'd need to be able to figure out how to do that at least from the stratosphere, if not from space, which becomes tricky. <laughs> so uh, really, you, you're saying we'd need the infrastructure of like a space elevator or something where we can, you know, some far future thing or uh, just the ability to launch infrared telescopes, far infrared telescopes into space willy nilly to make some sort of array up there that this is this is a far future project, but but it's not technically impossible. It's just prohibitive with the resources we have today. I, I think so. And I think in theory, something like Origins, um, if you if you have a far infrared space telescope with a big enough mirror, you get a better resolution. It's just you're it's hard to get great resolution in the infrared. It's it's possible. You can build big mirrors in the infrared. And like um, James Webb is a near infrared telescope, so it's not quite the same thing. But the resolution it's going to provide is going to be game changing in the near infrared. So there, there are ways to do it without interferometry in space, but um, that are maybe a little less technically challenging. But yeah, to get to the really high precision um, resolution is just tricky in the infrared. <laughs> Well, that's that's no problem, you know. I think uh, I 
think I always appreciate it when someone gives me a realistic appraisal of the situation rather than, you know, rather than whatever the most optimistic uh, possible interpretation is. I'd, I'd, rather, I'd rather hear the harsh truth than a comforting lie. Uh, but at the same time, with that said, um, if you were to come back to me 20 years into your ideal future, Right. If you were to say, okay, here are some of the open questions we have. Uh, here are some of the things we'd love to know the answer to. What would be the biggest questions or the biggest puzzles that are open to us right now that you would imagine, you know, maybe 20 years from now, if things go right for us, what will we be able to answer? What puzzles that, that we don't know the answer to today could potentially be revealed to us over the coming couple of decades. I think, I mean, I know I probably focus on this too much, but I think that we are close to having a better understanding of what causes the C plus deficit. So why we see this decrease in C plus over TIR as we go um, over infrared emission, as we go to brighter sources. So understanding that could really help us start to constrain things like um, the cosmic star formation history, which is a measurement of how galaxies form stars over time. And one somewhat mysterious thing, I think there, I, I know I study the local universe, so I just look at these things and get excited because I think they're amazing. But um, when we look at this cosmic star formation history, we see that um, galaxies form out, start, start out forming stars somewhat slowly and then the star formation rate in galaxies increases and increases until about three billion years after the big bang where there's a peak in star formation rates in galaxies and then it kind of decreases and decreases and decreases for the next 10 billion years to the point that we're at so understanding the shape of that curve and why it peaks where it does um, would also be something that i think um, with observatories like james webb as well as um, some all of the things that are happening on the ground on um, the like the Vera Rubin Observatory and um, just all these all these surveys all the work that's being done um, from the ground the next generation um, very large array these kind of things will help us get a better idea of the um, better constrain the shape of the cosmic star formation history and maybe better understand why that shape is the way it is um, which I think would be very cool. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's amazing. You know, as far as I know, there was a huge uh, advance in understanding the cosmic star formation history, uh, in sort of a broad average sense that took place during the 2010s. Uh, and uh, for you ultra nerds out there, uh, the review paper I'd recommend you read is by uh, Madow and Dickinson from 2014. Uh, but we still have huge, huge open questions about how this is distributed among different types of galaxies and what the history would be like for any particular galaxy and also out beyond the most distant galaxies we've measured or where only the most distant galaxies we've measured reside what was star formation like in the history of the early universe all of these questions are very poorly understood at present and i think like you say uh more observations, better observations across all wavelengths is going to be what it takes to help us disentangle this. 
Uh, Jessica, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation. I'm so pleased you were able to join us and show us a little bit about the universe in a way that I don't normally get to think about it. Um, so I'd like to give you the opportunity um, to share any final thoughts you have for our listeners. Um, I just, I'd really like to thank you again, um, Ethan, for giving me the opportunity to share. And um, thank USRA, the University Space Research Association, for um, providing me the space to do this work because it's very exciting and I really um, love being a part of it. Um, it's amazing to be able to say that I get to stare at galaxies um, for for my job and I really enjoy that but I my favorite thing to do is talk about astronomy with other people who are excited about it so this has just been a lot of fun for me and I really appreciate that. <laughs> Oh, well, it's been my pleasure to have you here, and uh, I'm so glad that I could give you the opportunity to talk about this with a wider audience, because there's only one universe that we get to experience in all our lives, and yet we all share it together. So why not share everything we know about it with everyone who's curious to know about it? Thank you, Jessica, for joining us, and thanks to all of you out there for making the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. Uh, it's only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash starts with a bang and shout outs go to everyone donating at the $5 a month level or above. Thanks to Brian Kinsella, Chad Marler, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Frank, John Mithot, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, Dominic Turpin, John Van Balaguyan, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Sea Green Mango, Sean Foley, Stefan Bernegger, William Blair, Pedro Teixeira, Laird Whitehill, Alex Fedotov, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benesh Tech LLC, Brian Terry, Danny, David Charney, Denier, Flo, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John Kozura, Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Kiliopu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Rafael Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rich Baker, The Human, Vlad Pashkovsky, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Nick Sunsev, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parikh, Andres Chovanek, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Head, Bob Shire, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Iddings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Caschione, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel there, George Jeff Boutel, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, Herbert Coe, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Javier Zazo, Tommy White, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tim Hines, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, William Vandenhuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>